Okay, folks, good evening. Our topic for tonight is Romantic Nationalism and the Jews. So we're going to talk about the 18 teens, which is a long time ago, 200 years ago, but certain developments occurred in that decade which are very instructive for a later time, including the worst parts of the 20th century, maybe even today. So when Napoleon was defeated in 1815, the question emerged whether to roll back aspects of the emancipation the Jews had attained in the preceding years of French hegemony or to leave it in place. Now, you could imagine there were two sides to this equation. There were those who were defenders of the Jews who said, well, we've given them whatever rights thus far, let them retain it. And there were those who were the vile bigots who said, no, give them nothing, take away, take away everything. It doesn't matter. For the most part, yes, but not necessarily. In German lands, there were those who fought against Napoleon. Weren't they afraid Napoleon did conquer Russia? They knew what they had, they didn't know. Okay, so yes, there were Hasidic rebbies and there were traditional types in Eastern Europe who were opposed to the Napoleonic conquest in Eastern Europe because they figured that he would bring secularization to the Jew and it would be the end of traditional Judaism. So that is definitely the case. But we're not talking about Eastern Europe right now because in Eastern Europe, there was no emancipation. The Jews of Russia don't get emancipated until 1991. And even then they run away to Israel. So it never happened. Uh, uh, opponents of the Jews engaged in anti-Semitic propaganda, demanding the abolition of Jewish rights. The infamous decree of 1808 was issued by Napoleon because there was complaint uh, complaints issued in Alsace that the Jews are uh, taking over the joint and that they need to be repressed and kept in certain uh, lines of work and not allowed to engage in other lines of work. So the Jews of Alsace did not have full civil rights, despite the fact that the Jews of France had been emancipated in the, 17, in the early 1790s. Many of their zechuyot, so to speak, were taken away on a 10-year basis. It was set to expire in 1818. Well, the question is, do you allow it to sunset and full Jewish emancipation to be uh, reinstated, or do you reimpose the infamous decree and keep Jews in a servile position? Ultimately, they were not reimposed, and full emancipation was achieved. Well, the issue of bankers, we'll see soon enough how that's a problem. Now, anti-Semitic types uh, wanted to extend these decrees, but again, they, they were not. In Germany, the status of the Jew was repeatedly reconsidered as a revisionist mood took over among the political elites, and they tried to extirpate all forms of French influence. Remember, nobody likes to lose a war. And when you lose a war and you suffer uh, you know, change, uh, imposed change that you wouldn't have wanted, and then you're able to beat back your opponent, what do you want to do? Take away from any vestige of, of uh, political life that is reminiscent of your conqueror. So the Jews being emancipated was associated with French rule. Therefore, if I want to get rid of any sort of uh, French influence, let's put the Jews back in the, in the, in the can. Very similar, like the the Weimar situation of, you know, we, we lost. Why did we lose? Stab in the back. It's very it's instructive for 100 years later. Correct. Now, the Congress of Vienna tried to restore the pre-revolutionary status quo. Equal status was afforded to Catholics, Protestants and Calvinists, but not Jews. OK, no agreement could be reached on the, about the Jews. It was decided to defer the matter 
for further consultation uh, to be taken place at the Council of the Confederation at Frankfurt. And in the interim, it was decided that Jews would enjoy the, the rights that had been granted in the states. Later, that would be changed to by the states. What's the difference between in the states and by the states? In the states means, Lamaisa, what have they had just recently? By the states means by the legitimate actors of the state to exclude a temporary regime that has been deposed, which would mean that the by the states, Lashon, is far more uh, um, repressive for the Jews. Now, much more, uh, much more limiting. Several big cities already withdrew Jewish rights, including Frankfurt, Bremen, Lubeck, Hamburg, Many, many places did roll back rights for Jews. The ideological justification for abolishing these rights had to be developed in some new literature. So this course has been mostly about ideas, not so much about action on the ground. So let's address the issue of this anti-Semitic literature that is trying to justify the rollback of Jewish rights at a time of romantic nationalism. We're no longer in the era of rationalism. So the Enlightenment figures are no longer the dominant force. Who's the dominant force in the public discourse? People with big ideas about, about the nation. Some were, and some were on the other side. Jews fought on both sides. Now, historian Friedrich Ruse of Berlin wrote the following work on the claims of the Jews to civil rights in Germany. And he denied it categorically. So they have their claims, we're going to deny them categorically. They don't deserve it. On what basis? So there was a deepening of national consciousness and a rejection of anything deemed foreign to German culture and history. And the Jew was seen as foreign. It didn't matter that some newly emancipated Jews had fought in German armies against the French. So, Ted, you're asking, did they fight? Yes, they fought, including against Napoleon. But that doesn't matter. Now, think about, as I said, 100 years later, the Jewish World War I veterans from the, 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 the Kaiser's army. What happened to them? So they got a little bit of respect in the Weimar era and even some token uh, respect in the Nazi era. But eventually, 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 all the fighting for the, for the, the Wehrmacht didn't, didn't do borscht. Okay? They were put to the, to the gas chamber too. Yeah. I have radar told for the yeah. One of them lost a leg. Uh Yeah, that's what happened. So Christianity was seen as an essential part of the new German nationalism. So Ruse says the following. A people cannot become a single whole except through the internal coalescence of all the traits of its character by a uniform manner of their manifestation in thought, faith, language, and devotion to its constitution. So really insisting upon a homogeneous culture, national culture, with no room for anybody who deviates, whether in matters of religion or anything else. Is this really achievable? No, not at any time, not in any place. Certainly not in Germany uh, with a whole big population of Jews. Now, a Jew could adapt, whether for himself or his children, but he would first have, have to accept the national faith, namely Christianity. So this idea that Ruse is saying, whether for themselves or for their children, what is that an allusion to? So it's conversion, but not necessarily of yourself, where the Jew remains a Jew out of uh, filial loyalty or piety, but wants the best for his child. 
So brings the child to the baptismal font, even though they themselves, the adult, don't do it. Okay? So, in the rational period, uh, the writers want the Jews to convert as an expression of accepting the state's laws and norms, while ruse in the romantic nationalistic comprehension uh, is an expansion and continuation of that. If the medieval theological demand was Jews convert out of acceptance of the gospel's truth, and the rationalists demanded that the Jew accept the superiority of Christian morality, which is not the same thing as the gospel truth, just saying that Christianity is better, more moral than Judaism. By the 18-teens, the nationalists wanted more. You have to acquire Christianity in order to acquire Germanism. You can't get Germanism without Christianity. And it's not the dogmas necessarily. It's not any particular ritual. It's the package, generally speaking, and the name Christianity is an essential component of your national identity. So if I converted to Christianity, yeah. my kid did. It was good enough. But would there be a problem if I lit Shabbos candles, even though I accepted Christianity? Presumably, yes. Presumably, yes, because as I've said many times before, you can never fully uh, se- uh, separate out religious anti-Judaism and racial anti-Semitism they'll always be somehow tied together. And the fact that a person accepts baptism, but still does a few Jewish rituals, is going to be an affront to enough people to warrant casting this person out from the group, from the in-group. Did this, did this foster a Murano type of... Uh, no, no, it did not foster a Murano type thing because the Jews who were accepting baptism, for the most part, were already getting rid of ritual Judaism, maybe even a few decades earlier. Yes, some had residual feelings in their heart of compassion for their former co-religionists. You know, I I wouldn't want to see them suffer, but not that I'm still lighting Shabbos candles and singing Shalom Aleichem under cover of darkness. Okay. Now, Ruz admitted that in his view, it would have been better had the Jews never come to Germany. Better they were never here. But now that they're here, we have to limit their number by banning immigration and paving the way for their conversion. This idea of banning immigration is important because Jews did move in large numbers into Germany from where? From Eastern Europe, from Poland. Okay, first of all, because Posen became part of Germany, which was really a Polish region. Uh, and also because people for economic improvement moved westward to not only to Germany, but to other Western European countries and eventually to America. Okay. Could, now, you, could you just uh, repeat what was the what was the uh, the years of the great influx into Germany? So, significant numbers really only start after 1881 when you have pogroms in the Pale of Settlement. But even before that, there were people who moved westward. There were. So he's talking about this immigration. Well, I, I'm projecting forward, but already probably in the 18 teens, there were people who were moving into Germany from other places, and these are not desirable as far as the, you know, the German nationalists are concerned. So the goal was to achieve the disappearance of the Jewish people. The disappearance of the Jewish people. Jews are alien and pursue profits at an unreasonable extent. They're always looking for the extra dollar. That's the claim. Excuse me, but if somebody converted to Christianity... They'd still pursue the dollar. Yeah, there'd still be some sort of a uh, feeling of mistrust. And probably, probably, yeah. No, not, not, not legally required. So he claimed that even though in those parts of the world where Jews had been given full citizenship, 
They have not abandoned commerce and trade. He specifies Spain and Poland. Not that the Jews in Spain and Poland never had full citizenship, but the idea is when the Jews have choices, when they have options available to them, they still choose the most objectionable type of way of earning a living. And he says, in 40 years of discussion in Germany, the Jews have not made any effort at internal reform and betterment. That's not a fair characterization, though, because both on the religious grounds, there was the beginnings of the reform movement in Sison with Israel Jacobson, which we spoke about a few years ago, and there were masculic types and pseudo-masculic types who did cultivate secular education. They didn't necessarily change the line of work, but they had secular education. They should know, but in in Berlin, they know. In Berlin, they see the Jews are converting out and, and... All right, now, Jew, so then he says, Jews believe that physical labor is a punishment and that capital accumulation is a sign of divine chosenness. How are we the Amanivgar? Because I got an extra dollar in my pocket. Okay, now, Ruzd didn't just want to defame Jews and Judaism. He wanted to show that there was a collective Jewish mentality separating the Jew from his German environment. And he pretty did a pretty, pretty did a pretty compelling job of proving that point with his work and convinced a lot of people. Ruse regarded this phenomenon as a product of the Jews' devotion to his faith, which is really baloney because plenty of Jews were already irreligious and very few were, were truly pious in Germany at that point, at least not in Berlin. Um, and the idea that devotion to money accumulation is the product of devotion to Torah Sinai never really made any sense, but people buy into it. Uh, for Ruz, unlike the rationalists, the state exists only on the inner unity of its citizens. Hence, Jews cannot stake a claim to civil rights. Ruz held that the Jews constitute their own nation and even their own state. So the Jews are their own state. There's no Medinat Israel for another 125 years, but yet the Jews are their own state. Didn't we mention that a couple of weeks ago? Yes. So the notion of a state within a state was around from 1784. He's repackaging it, rebranding it as the Jews are a nation and the Jews are a state, but not just within this state, but broadly speaking internationally, the the Jews are collectively a state without borders. So he, he regards the Torah as a political document keeping Jews united. In this regard, he borrowed from Mendelssohn, but Mendelssohn had only said the Torah was a political document vis-a-vis the commonwealth in the land of Israel. Mendelssohn himself held that in the diaspora, Judaism is a religion, not a political document. So Ruse is misappropriating Mendelssohn and twisting it to his own advantage. Ruse held that plenty of contemporary Jews, well, he knew, he knew they were not religious, but it didn't matter to him. Quote, no man can serve two masters. And indeed, it is a strange contradiction that a citizen of the Jewish state or kingdom should seek to be at the same time a citizen of a Christian state. So here the Jews have their passport. It says Jewish state on it. Now, it doesn't really exist, but he's pretending that it exists. So why would they want to be a a member of the Christian state when they're already part of a Jewish state? What should be done to the Jews before they convert or if they never do? Now, that's the most important question that all these guys have to answer. It's one thing to pontificate about what ought to happen. But until it does, what do you do now? So put them in their former status. Keep their numbers down. Restrict their occupational profile. They can judge themselves, but hold no public office. They should wear special garments, like a yellow badge. Pay a Jewish tax, but preserve their human rights. In other words, no concentration camps and forced labor and and death camps, 
that's not going to happen. That's not on his mind. So, so how do you keep the numbers down without killing people? There are three ways. One, ban immigration. Two, uh, prohibit the uh, establishment of new families. This was a medieval thing. Let's say a father has five sons. How many of them can live in this town and, and marry and, and have a family? Only one. One family replaces one family. What happens to the other four boys? They go into the luft. They go into the air. Get out. And lastly, encouraging emigration. Encouraging emigration. Mitchner's book of Texas talking about the German immigration. Yeah. They had that situation where one son only was allowed to right. go ahead and, and work for the the um, Don or whatever you call uh-huh. it. Yeah. It's a, a it's a, it's a, a common method of keeping the undesirable population at a certain stable level and not growing with the ordinary population growth. But that was not limited to the Jews, right? It could, it could be done in any group. So, uh, many Jews had acculturated by the eighteen teens, uh, and secularization had had changed Europe. Ruse predicted that the, the distinction between Jews and Christians along li- religious lines um, would eventually go away. After all, many had, had dro- dropped the mitzvot. But Ruse claimed that this is all superficial and that short of baptism, the Jew remained the eternal Jew. So even without uh, Shabbos observance and putting tefillin every morning, even if you do none of that, you're still the eternal Jew without the baptism. Then we go down to the philosopher Jacob Friedrich Fries, or Fries actually. He saw the Jews as a state within a state, a a hostile group to its environment. It was out of the question to grant them citizenship. Do not do it. You cannot grant them citizenship unless they thoroughly change their nature. And until such time, or permanently if they don't do it, restrict their personal liberty, their freedom of movement, and their ability to establish a family. Fries looked forward to the end of German Jewry. But in his view, that end did not have to mean conversion. So now we get to a distinction between the previous guy I spoke about, Ruse, who was a, uh, who was a historian, and Fries, who was a philosopher. The philosopher says it could happen by internal reform. The Jew does not have to become a goy. He could cease to be an old-line Jew, an old-world Jew. If their rabbis go to university and reform the Judaism and sterilize the Judaism, to use a not pleasant word, but sterilization of Judaism, then it will no longer be objectionable and no longer inculcate within the individual Jew these horrible traits that we have to eliminate from German society. But what he's doing, though, is saying an if, which is really an impossible if. It's like saying if every Jew observed Shabbos for two Shabbos... Mashiach would come, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I... I, Yeah. And this is really something that's against an assimilation by going ahead and restricting the the freedom of the Jew. Right. So so what what these guys are all um, trying to balance is a desire for Jewish assimilation and acculturation with a fear that if it doesn't happen the right way, it'll have a pernicious influence on society. So you have to keep the the the. the nefarious influence of the Jew from infecting the, the body politic, which requires isolation, ghettoization. But on the other hand, you don't want the impact of ghettoization on the Jew because you want them to be seeing a wider, wider world. Well, what's the, what's the answer? You can't have it both ways. You're stuck. 
and nobody had the right answer. Maybe, maybe, but I don't think people are looking at it from a from point of view. They're looking at it from a standpoint of rights and, and economic opportunities. Did it swallow it up? Yeah. Now, uh, so Fries objected to, to religious dogma and ritual. He did not, however, oppose Christian emotionalism. Anti-Semitism, devoid of any real Christian element, can go further than Christian anti-Semitism. So this is a key point. If you're bound by some Christian notion of charity or the possibility of universal acceptance of Jesus, including by the Jews, then there are limits to what you'll do to hurt the Jew. But if you're not bound by any such Christian uh, sentiment, if it's just purely secular and you don't like the Jews, what's stopping you from the worst excesses? Basically nothing. So Fries was worse than Ruse. At least Ruse thought that inclusion was possible when the Jews accept the Ashka. But Fries thought, thought the Jews would be forever obstinate. And he sounds like, a, uh, like he wants a pogrom or expulsion. I'll quote to you, the scandal will not come to an end without dreadful acts of violence if our government does not halt the evil quickly and with great force. So this is a call to a pogrom, basically. And then, if our Jews do not wean themselves completely from the abomination of their ceremonies, rituals, and rabbinate, and do not adopt in theory and in practice ways of understanding and honesty to such an extent as to be able to merge with Christians in one civil society, and it would be the right to announce their loss of civic rights among us, to withdraw protection from them, as in the days of Spain, 1492, and to expel them from the country, expel the Jews from Germany if they can't get their act together the way we see it. Then, widespread hostility to Jews did exist in the 18-teens. There was a fight over the status of the Jews in Frankfurt. So this is a major city in Germany where the Council of Confederation was meeting, and the local Jews in Frankfurt had paid 440,000 guldens to achieve emancipation in 1811. But the Senate of Frankfurt, after the ouster of the Napoleonic armies, rescinded that deal. So here the Jews paid 440,000 guldens, and what did they get for it? Nothing, nothing. It was 20 years worth of the Jew tax, all wrapped into one, paid at one time. So... You know, what's going to be? Will the Jews have their rights or not? It's, it's, it's a debatable point. In the interim, wealthy Jews had bought fancy houses in prestigious parts of town and opened up high-end shops. So the world was changing. The Jews were participating in the upper reaches of society. Anti-Semitic propagandists said, within a few years, what's going to happen? Most of the Christian residents will become beggars that the Jews will take over completely, and we, the true Frankfurtians, will become the underclass. Okay? All right, uh, so it says... They'll kick us out of the land. Okay. Now, so Frankfurt will become a Jewish city, with Christians reduced to being caretakers in Jewish-owned warehouses. Jewish-owned warehouse. All right. Then he says, their own advantage is that the only motive they pursue is profit. We shall get Jewish lawyers, Jewish judges, Jewish tax collectors, Jewish teachers, Jewish government ministers, and a Jewish dynasty of rulers. If we don't nip it in the bud now, all this is going to happen in very short order. There's a fear, fear that the Jews are going to take over. The lowest stratum of society was projected to become the superiors, and they can't let that happen. 
So the Senate arguments against emancipation stress the foreign character of the Jew. They are guests in the lands of their dispersion, that their home is Eretz Yisrael, and wherever they are, they are a foreigner. The Jew in England is not an Englishman. The Jew in Poland is not a Pole. The Jew in Sweden is not a Swede. They, they, they gave every country in Europe and said, whoever they, they're not one of them. Okay. So that's dual loyalty accusation. Not even dual. It's single loyalty, but not to here. Okay. Now, the claim that because Jews cling to the to laws that deliberately inhi- inhibit civic participation, the state has no cho- choice but to close itself to the Jews, basically saying it's the Jews' fault. Their own halachot prevent them from interacting in, in having social intercourse with everybody else. So since they're refusing, we, the, the, the custodians of the state, will close the state to them. It'll be a two-way street. So it seems to be one blanket thought because there were many, and I would guess many successful Jews who didn't follow the halachot. Right, right, of course. But they're not saying that. The fact that they're ignoring those people conveniently, conveniently, yeah. Russia, uh-huh. Poland, you can be a brutal anti-Semite. Yeah. Just kill and restrict. Right. And you go to England, the Germans. You have to find a justification. You have to be elegant about it. Correct. Yes. A svara. Yes. Correct. Now, the, the thinking was that the Jews are a widespread hereditary band of merchants, merchants closely welded by faith. Think about that for a second. What do you, how do you understand your Jewish identity, your association with fellow Jews, the one sitting three seats over in Shul and the one 500 miles away in another state, your co-religionists, your mishpacha, extended family, your... You all meet at the Jewish deli. Okay, so we, we have our own way of thinking about our relationship with our fellow Jew. But what this guy is saying is that the Jew... What are the Jews, really? They're a hereditary band of merchants who happen to be welded together by faith. This reminds me of like the like an understanding of the gypsies. The, the, the gypsies are a wandering band of people uh, bound together by, you know, larceny. Uh, I mean, th- that's that's the way they're they're, they're pursuing the Jews. Yeah. Now, ar- arguments in the Senate against the Jews was that the very fact that the Jews were collectively engaged in political lobbying effort proved that the Jews were more loyal to each other than to society as a whole. Now, that is a brilliant circular argument. A brilliant circular argument. It's saying here, look what's happening. The Jews are lobbying for their for, for Jewish rights. But as a group, they're lobbying, not as individuals, which means what? They're loyal to that group, more so than to the state. It's hard to argue against that. There's a lot of truth to it, but it's very circular. All right. Okay, let's... let's <laughs> Blame, blaming people for, for what they do wrong when they're in power is one thing, but, th- but this argument is a very potent argument. Look, the Goyim are going to see what's happening. They see that Jews band together in pursuit of some political objective, namely their own emancipation. But they're not doing it as isolated individuals. They're doing it as a collective. So it must be that that's where your loyalty really lies. Isn't the political animal where you do lobby for something uh-huh. consists of a group, whether yeah, yeah. you're Jewish, whether you're black, or it, whether... Right, you, you could say this about any subgroup of, 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 uh, of society. Yeah. Sure. 
Sure. And uh, sometimes with, with, with uh, more than a kernel of truth about it. Now, anti-Semitic voices further noted that Jews all over Germany were watching the events in Frankfurt as if they all had a vested out- interest in the outcome. Now, that's OK. So this is another important point. Whenever there's news about Jews in the world, we watch, we put the TV on and we're paying close attention. The Goyim aren't paying attention. Our next door neighbor who's Italian or Irish doesn't really care, but we care, we pay attention. So the argument goes, well, why are all these Jews in other parts of the Germanic Confederation obsessing over what the Frankfurt Senate does on behalf of the Jews of Frankfurt? Answer, because the Jews as a collective all over Germany, not just in this one city, are really a nation unto unto itself. And, and so they should be kept out. Okay. Well, the Jews were seen as dangerous, combining, uh, uh, rubbing for money, having secret ties over all over the world, having ease of transfer, information transfer, egoistic interests, religious fanaticism, and hatred. At this time, secret societies were all the rage. Secret societies were a big rage then. And they were seen as the, you know, the boogeyman of that time. That the government was afraid some cabal meeting in a dark corner somewhere is going to overthrow the government. Now, 100 years later, that would happen. Actually, not just 100 years later, a few times in European history between the 1815 and the end of World War I, or just after World War I, this would happen that some small group can get together and do inflict major damage. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, the Jews are being compared to these secret groups because if you want to disparage the Jews, take the most feared element at any given moment and say the Jews equal fill in the blank. All right. Anti-Semitic writers criticized the Jews for wasting the Germanic Confederation's precious time with their meritless, meritless claims, meaning the chutzpah of you to even sue for emancipation. Who do you think you are? We're busy. We have a lot of things on our agenda and we have only X number of days of the legislative session, and you're wasting legislative session with your narrowed about Jewish rights. Go home, boo-hoo. Okay. Now they're unworthy litigants, bunch of wretches and outcasts. Yeah. Now Fra- the Frankfurt Senate writers wish there was a large tract of land to send the Jews, like in Russia. Well, I have a slogan for you. Resettlement in the East. Code word for death. Resettlement in the East. Here we're saying, we wish we had a tract of land somewhere over there to put all these people. We don't. Well, 120 years later, they would. Okay. Or a return to Palestine by negotiating with the Ottomans. So this is a pie in the sky idea. No way it was going to happen. It's 1817, not 1917. And we're not dealing with Arthur Balfour here. We're dealing with Germans 100 years too early. Get rid of them and their troubles in one stroke. Okay, so um, the next writer of significance is Ludolf Holst. Holst wrote of the Jews of Hamburg. So now we're switching from Frankfurt to Hamburg in 1818. And he had been away from Germany for about a decade because of his uh, anti-Napoleonic views. He was exiled basically to, I think, to, to Lithuania. And, and he came back. And so he says the Jews are corrupting commerce by hawking, by clipping coins, by trading in so-called paper, by performing fictitious banking transactions, by importing shoddy goods, by importing uh, uh, expensive goods, and ruining the livelihood of local merchants. So all the real contemporary troubles are blamed on the Jews. These are all real things. 
But who's guilty of them? Yes, sometimes it's a Jew, sometimes it's a Goy. Anybody can be guilty of these things. So who do you say is guilty? The Jew. Spiraling prices, unemployed artisans, the pursuit of luxuries by the super wealthy, the decline of morality, and the increase in the number of orphan asylums. All this because the Jew. No evidence is offered, but then again, none is needed. You need to make an accusation. It doesn't have to have much merit. Okay, yeah. Now, Hulse compared the fate of the Jews 50 years earlier versus the present and did the same thing concerning the Gentiles. This was his most powerful argument. And this is where everybody pay attention. So if you compare the Jew in 1770 in the cities of Germany, Versus the Jew in 1820. What's the difference? Well, they were a ghettoized, marginal community with almost no wealthy people. There may be a handful of court Jew types, but basically living hand to mouth, pious, cloistered, not in your face as far as the rest of the, the, the population was concerned. And the Goyim liked that. Good, keep the Jews in the margin. By 1820, the Jews are buying fancy houses, they're opening up fancy shops, they have an outsized influence over the fate of the economy, uh, and they're pursuing civil rights, maybe in some places successfully. So you could say the Jews did really well for themselves over the past few decades, undoubtedly so. Now compare that to the, to the Goyim, or to society at large. Well, society has taken a big hit. Why? Because there was 15 years of war, and that'll do that to a society. The, the, the standard of living will go down, There'll be a lot of disenfranchised and dissatisfied people. So if you compare the the downfall or the the decline in the living conditions for the Goy and the improved living conditions for the Jew, so what what, what argument can can you make? That the Jews are taking over the Goyim are going to suffer a steep drop off and, and, and be uh, uh, at the bottom of the heap. And all this happened because we gave them rights. So what's the solution? Take them away. Take them away. The Jews probably were affected by the war, but on the whole, when, you're start, when your starting point is you have uh, limited rights and you have a, a, a very narrow economic profile and you're forbidden to this, do this or that, and then all of a sudden you can do a lot of other things you previously couldn't do, then even in a depressed economic condition, your personal circumstances will be a little bit better or maybe a lot better. Okay, so the, the claim was, the host says, that the Jews, if they're not stopped, will take over the whole country, get rid of the Christians, and turn Germany into a second Eretz Canaan. Now, what happened in Eretz Canaan? It wasn't good if you were one of the Canaan, all right? So that's going to happen to Germany, he's saying. Now, instead, the Jews should be forced to remain within certain specific limits and not get uppity, lest there be a violent backlash. A violent backlash. So again, another writer is talking about how, well, if it doesn't go our way, there'll be blood in the streets. Is this a sort of ghettoizing? So maybe, um, but it wasn't even so much about the residential pattern, so much it was about uh, economic opportunity and uh, political rights. Living space was a, a, a relatively, comparatively minor concern. So uh, Garlieb Helwig Merkel, not related to Angela Merkel, as far as I could tell, uh, he had been away for a while, and he wrote how the Jews increased their wealth at a terrifying rate, while the Germans had suffered political disaster and diminished stature. The Jews made their gains at the expense of other citizens. The proliferation of Jewish shops 
had driven up rents astronomically. You know, it used to be you could rent a little shop and open up a store, but now the Jews are here. So all of a sudden you're paying three times as much. Nobody can afford anything. The entry of Jews into the book trade flooded the market with unlicensed printing, as he claimed. Jews were buying up estates of the nobility on the other side of the river, the summer homes. Once again, a smattering of facts and a lot of exaggeration, a lot of exaggeration. Merkel had been enlightened in 1800 and had called for Jewish emancipation. But now following the romantic nationalist mood, he reversed course. This happened to a lot of people. They went whichever way the wind was blowing, you know? You drop a few leaves, you see which way it goes, and you follow the wind. All right. Uh, the European countries are Christian, he said. The, the countries are Christian. Simple as that. Jews are entitled to concessions, but not rights. Concessions, but not rights. This is the exact opposite of what? Of Washington's letter to the Newport Congregation, which we learned about a couple of years ago, 1790. That why do Jews have rights in America? Not as a matter of sufferance, but rather because everybody under this system of governance is equal. And it can't be taken away from you on the basis of religious affiliation. Whereas in Germany, they're saying, no, no, we'll give you some concessions. Okay. Merkel set himself up as the guardian of the Jewish people. If the government won't protect Germans from the Jews then the citizenry will have to take matters into their own hands. Vehement language and confident prediction about what would happen. Quote, there are very few countries in Europe where the Jews have not attained excessive power, which they use for ill purposes and thus brought persecution upon themselves. Basically blame the Jews for anti-Jewish violence, that it's going to happen and it's their own fault. It used to be over silly things like desecration of the host, whereas now it's over much more reasonable charges with a far more terrible consequence. Now, Gideon, you said they, because it's a more refined society, they have to come up with a, with a logic, a svara, a, a justification for what they're going to do. So here the author is saying, yeah, in the old days, we came up with shtusim, desecration of the host, but now we have better reasons. We have better reasons, okay? But, but also far more terrible consequences higher death tolls in modern times than in medieval times. I mean, the numbers and population, generally speaking, have gone up astronomically, but the percentage of the death toll also is going to be far higher in the 20th century than it was in any previous century. Well, well, uh, Hitler, how many times did he have this uh, that they just kept throwing Jews out and he kept coming back? Well, Jews like to keep coming back and they just get, get, get welcomed back because they're needed. Okay. I noticed that even though you're talking about a non-religious reason yeah. for anti-Semitism, yes. when you're going back 3,000 years, no matter what the reason is, yeah. you still have a pattern that was set. If you're saying it's for religious reasons, or if you're saying it's for not religious, or if yeah. you're saying you're going to go ahead and get to the point where you're going to be anti-Semitic. Yeah, sure. And you're just, not cha- you're just changing the... Uh, Right. Uh, so in the chat, Dave, we're talking about 1816, 1817, 18. That's what you were talking about. Okay. So, warnings of popular indignation were intended to goad the authorities into halting the progress for Jewish rights and possibly rolling them back. Meaning, why are these writers saying, well, if the government doesn't do anything, we're going to start putting pummeling people in the street? They're trying to get the government to do something because the government doesn't want to have street violence. 
the governing authorities don't like when things get out of hand because you know they never they know they don't know how it will end and if their own control over the state will be lost in the process now instead of of convincing the authorities to roll back jewish rights these statements just served as an incitement to riot in other words instead of well if you don't do this things will get ugly they just got ugly and nothing and, and, and nothing was done to prevent it. All this in the public sphere, in the street, politicians. The Sometimes, yeah, but certainly the politicians did. Are there yeah. any philos? There are. There are philosemitic writers, but they're not as famous, and they get shouted down. They get shouted down. So Rachel Varnhagen, who's famous for being a Mishumedis and for running a salon, okay, one of the famous salon Jewesses or former Jewesses, warned that incitement over many years was headed to violence. And lo and behold, it happens. The Hep Hep riots, H-E-P, H-E-P, Hep Hep, began in Würzburg in Bavaria on August 2nd, 1819. So what does Hep stand for? Either it stands for Herulusimo est perdita, which means Jerusalem has fallen or Jerusalem is lost. It's an acronym H-E-P. Or it stands for Hebrew. The Hep is a Heb, Heb. Um, alternatively, it's a shouting slogan for horse racers uh, in Germany. Uh, there are various theories as to what it, the etymology, etymology of the whole thing is. So the question of Jewish citizenship in Würzburg was being decided by the Assembly of the Estates in 1819. Theodor Schwering wrote a screed against Jews in which he said, the districts in which the spirit of Jewish violence and corruption have not reached are the happiest. In other words, where is, where is it good in the world? Where there are no Jews. Professor Sebald Brendel, a devoted liberal, so here we're getting to the Philo-Semites, announced that the soon publication of a book refuting swearing and calling for full rights for the Jews. So when it's announced in a newspaper that, oh, some prestigious professor is writing a pro-Jewish book, well, that's not going to go over well with some of the masses. So har- harassment of Jews began with the cry of hep-hep. The writers raised the temperature of the debate, yielding acts of violence. Rioters attacked houses, smashed windows, broke doors, and Jews were beaten up. The police failed to intervene. The army was called in. There were two fatalities among the rioters. Anti-Jewish ferment lasted in Würzburg for over a month, and it spread to other cities. It spread in Bavaria and even beyond. One shul was vandalized, a Torah scroll was destroyed. The central government in Munich, huh? some people were killed, yes. Uh, the central government in Munich feared that the riots were the start of an insurrection against the regime by hidden revolutionaries. So here the thinking is, this is not just anti-Jewish, but rather this is anti-government. So beyond Bavaria, the disturbances broke out in Frankfurt on August 19th and lasted for three days. 30 other cities were affected. The riots reached as far as Copenhagen. In Heidelberg, the riots resembled the Russian pogrom of a later time with people coming in and tearing open pillows and throwing furniture into the street. Who broke it up? University students broke up the riots, brought it to an end, but not out of love of the Jew, but rather out of a sense of humanitarian obligation, meaning this shouldn't happen to anybody. I don't love the Jew, I may even dislike the Jew, but this goes too far, and the humanitarian in me will not allow this sort of oppression to occur. At Hamburg, the riot lasted for a week, from August 20th to August 26th. The Jews fought back. So 
like in Odessa under Jabotinsky in 1903, the Jews fought back at Hamburg. They had some nerve then. Yeah. And when it was over, many Jews left Hamburg for neighboring Altona, which was under Danish rule. Now, these riots, the Hep-Hep riots, took everyone by surprise. The government and some later historical researchers really did believe that this was an anti-government uh, event. But that's plain wrong. And the later scholarship indicates, and the better scholarship indicates, this was not an anti-government thing. This was specifically anti-Jewish. How do we know this? Because the participants in the anti-Jewish riots were not the revolutionary types. They didn't come from the same social or black economic background or educational background. These were people who were known to be anti-Jewish bigots. The, the students were the revolutionary types, but these were not students. The riots were concentrated in areas where the question of Jewish emancipation was still being addressed. Had it been any other target, the government would have stopped the incitement well before. Only because it was targeting Jews did the government wait until violence actually broke out. Now, that is a key point. The government has intelligence officers. You know, they, they're not oblivious to what's going on in society. And if they think something bad is about to happen, they take preemptive measures. Unless the, 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 the target of the venom happens to be the Jew, in which case you allow things to percolate and, and uh, develop until such time as it, it's gone too far, then you have to shut it down. In Russia, that happened. Here, it probably didn't happen. Now, despite having physically left the ghetto, uh, the J Jews were still a people apart. And the Hep-Hep riots reinforced this notion that the Jews were a people apart. Because if you're uh, you know, one, of, one of the citizens, if you're part of the, the broader uh, national group, do you get picked on and targeted like this? No, it wouldn't happen. wouldn't happen. Now, while the episode... Uh, um, well, the government eventually stepped in to quell the violence. The popular takeaway from this episode was that it's dangerous to be a Jew in Germany. And it's not all that dangerous to be ha hateful towards Jews in Germany. That's what people took from this, that uh, the Jew is in a little bit of trouble. Now, if you're a Jew who's nervous about this and sees uh, the handwriting on the wall, where can you go? Scandinavian countries. Maybe you could, but and a small number would do that. America, the Golden of Medina. When we do when we did American history, American Jewish history, remember the periodization? The periodization worked like this: 1654. Okay, they come to New Amsterdam, 23 Jews, Peter Stuyvesant, and it extends not to 1776, but rather to 1820 maybe 1825, but 1820. Why? Because that's the period of Sephardic domination. Starting 1820, right after the Hep-Hep riots, the German wave. And it lasts till when? 1881. And then what's the next phase? 1881 to either 1914 and the end of the immigration wave of World War I, or you know, 1945, World War, end of World War II. So the periodization of American Jewish history recognizes that there's a turning point in Germany right around this time, that the romantic national reaction leads to a violent outburst against Jews, and Jews start going further west across the ocean, across the pond. Okay. Well, uh, at Würzburg, Jews fled the city and stayed in tents for a few days. Several Jews were killed. 
Other than at Heidelberg, the townspeople generally remained passive bystanders. At Heidelberg, they helped the Jews, but most places, they were passive bystanders. What does that mean? And what does that uh, portend for the future? It's a, a willingness of the, the, the broader population to allow the most hate-filled to act on their hatred without interference. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Jewish elites and acculturated types largely ignored the riots because it didn't affect them. Um, and uh, there's a quote from Rachel Von Hagen that I want to read to you. A second, if I can get it quickly. Okay, a quote from Rachel Von Hagen. Here. Uh, okay, I am infinitely sad on account of the Jews in a way I have never experienced before. What should this mass of people do, driven out of their homes? They want to keep them only to, uh, to despise and torture them further. I know my country. Unfortunately, for the past three years, I've said the Jews will be attacked. I have witnesses. The Germans wax bold with indignation. And why? Because they are the most civilized, peace-loving, and obedient people. The, newly, the newfound hypocritical love for Christianity, may God forgive my sin, and with the Middle Ages, with its poetry, art, and atrocities, incites the people to commit only, the only atrocity they may still be provoked to do, attacking the Jews. Their hate does not stem from religious zeal. How can they hate other faiths when they don't even love their own? So here a Mishumedes, who's a new Christian, who's forsaken Judaism, feels bad about what happened to her former co-religionists, and is basically saying that this romantic reaction in Germany is all fluff. They don't even love their own religion. What do they do? They just love hating others. They just love hating others. Yeah, it could be. So sometimes when you think you're immune, you're not really immune. She converted out of out of sincere out of sincere love of Christianity, and also she married a goy. It helps. So now Ludwig Holst was an economic expert in Hamburg. Uh, Hep Hep at Hamburg began in the coffee houses frequented by the Jews and then spread. What are the Jews doing in coffee houses? Drinking trafe coffee, okay? So this wasn't Starbucks with an OU on it. Uh, what's going on here is this: people don't like the fact that. A social a place of social gathering has been infested by the Jews sitting there, not with his laptop because this wasn't 2019; it was 1819. But you know the functional equivalent of the of the Wi-Fi of 200 years ago. They're talking, and what is a Jew doing in the coffee house? So stone the coffee house. Yeah, yeah. Now the Hamburg Senate knew that these were planned riots over economic competition. They feared what the riots might mean for the city's commercial reputation. When they threatened to shoot protesters, the riots subsided. So you break out the guns and say we're going to use them, and the rioters calm down. The riots had little support in Hamburg. The goal was to restrict Jewish occupational choice. So, you know, the ultimate outcome of these hostilities was not the deaths of many Jews and did not necessarily uh, change the government's opinion about the matters of Jewish emancipation. The reactionary mood was going to be the dominant theme anyway, even without the violence. And that would continue until when? Well, basically until 1848. 
because in 1848 you have a liberal revolution and the states of Europe move forward uh, you know, pro- progress on Jewish rights not at the same pace in every country not at the same pace in every German principality but after 30 years of conservative reaction eventually 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 there'll be some steps forward on emancipation so tonight's session was really all about how do how does an intellectual world justify reversing the humanitarian trend and the answer is they come up with their answers they come up with their explanations whether it's that christianity is an essential part of the german uh, identity or the schmutz or the jews are guilty of this that other crime or the man on the street just doesn't want it and we're willing to use fisticuffs to make it happen okay so those are are some of the 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 takeaways from tonight's session so I'll take any questions questions I'll open up the chat open up the uh, allow participants to unmute themselves one second one second okay okay hello yeah Hi. yeah how are you yeah. questions um when you spoke about the age of romanticism and and going back to you know the uh, old times and the the national roots of of countries yeah would that not have made the countries um you know, sympathetic to any beginnings of Zionistic kinds of feelings. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned that tonight that there was there was a, you know, a brief brief flirtation with the idea of sending the Jews back to Palestine. This is something that happens in Germany. It happens in Poland in a big way. It happens in Hungary eventually. Almost every anti-Semitic reactionary regime in Europe before the Shoah, at some point or another, thinks to themselves that we can eliminate our Jewish population, which we don't really want. By sending them back to their ancestral homeland. And then what happened? It deflates. Yeah, yeah. It, it deflates. Yeah. What ha- In other words, it's a flirtation, but it doesn't come to any kind of fruition. Well, let's think about it realistically. It requires Jewish effort to make this uh, uh, anything close to uh, a reality, which means that in the, in the pre-Herzl era... It's, it's nothing. In the post-Herzl era, it can become something. And certainly by the 1920s and 30s, when there's a yeshuv that already has a Balfour Declaration and there's uh, you know, 200,000, 300,000 people, and they're building up a population, then it's very real. So by the 1930s, when the Eastern European countries are thinking about getting rid of excess Jews, this is a serious thing. So, but at the very, very beginning, in the 1820s, let's say, or the 1810s, yeah. whatever, they weren't worried about what the Arabs or the citizens no, no, no. were thinking. But that was only later. At the beginning, they, in other words, I think maybe the Jewish population sort of missed their mark because it was a, a slight momentum. Well, yeah, but, but the, the Ottomans would have to uh, acquiesce. And they, yeah. generally speaking, were not interested in doing anything for the Jews. I see. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Was there a significant difference in the reaction in Catholic versus Protestant Germany? At, at this particular time, uh, in the, in the post-Napoleonic era, the answer is no. Uh, in an earlier time, the answer would have been yes. Um, with the, the, the Catholic perspective being surprisingly more moderate than the, than the Lutheran one. You said 
you said that they yeah. didn't like the Jew because the Jew was money hungry. He was the merchant, yeah. etc. They were afraid of being displaced. But wasn't there some kind of philosophy in Calvinism that spoke about predestination and yes, in Calvinism, there's 120,000 people who go to Shema, go to heaven, and everybody else is doomed. Uh, so there's predestination. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a pretty silly theology. If you, if you don't if you don't mind me saying so, they didn't lash out against the Calvinists for having that kind of, you know. No, the, so the Calvinists were able to, to secure for themselves equal rights with the other with, with the Lutherans and the Catholics. But the Calvinists didn't get. No, they didn't have trouble. No, not 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 in not in Central Europe in the, in the 19th century, and in earlier time, yes. Uh, because of the peculiarities of their theology. But by the 19th century, everybody was on equal playing field, except for the Jew. But still the Jew was left behind. Yeah, well, it's because the sentiment was, was hostile to the Jew. Okay, we're going to stop here. See everybody next week. Take care.